a visiting minister who stood at the door to greet people after the service. The congregation seemed generally appreciative of his sermon, but one lady's comments unsettled him. It was too long and it was too loud, she said abruptly, and it was boring. After overhearing her remarks, the deacon tried to intervene and assure the pastor that she shouldn't be taken too seriously. But he only made matters worse. Don't pay any attention to her, he said. She's losing it a bit and she just repeats what everyone else is saying. (laughs) Whatever we, we make of our Sunday services, few would deny that worship is of major importance. Every church practices it in some shape or form, but we do so in many different ways, don't we? We agree that worship is important, even vital to our faith, but we often disagree exactly how. Even more critically, perhaps, we don't always ask the most important questions. What lies at the heart of worship? And how should we engage in it? More specifically, is worship something that we can only do in church? Or is it a more widespread and open-ended activity? What is the true nature of worship? Well, there are many possible answers. But if we're looking for solid and reliable ones, the best place to turn is to Scripture. And our passage from Romans chapter 12 provides three of the clearest principles, I believe, to guide us as the Apostle Paul addresses the total commitment, the thorough conversion and true conceptions that are involved in a fully biblical understanding of worship which extends well beyond our Sunday mornings and should ultimately shape our whole lives. Romans chapter 12 comes towards the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which he probably wrote in about 60 AD. Romans is one of the most challenging and theologically demanding of all the apostles' epistles. But the last few chapters, beginning with 12, address more down-to-earth topics. And a major concern for Paul is a true understanding of worship as something which involves the total commitment of our whole person. In his book, The Source, author James Michener tells the story of a man named Urbal, who was a farmer living in about 2200 BC. He worshipped two gods. One, a god of death, the other, a goddess of fertility. One day, the temple priests told Urbal to bring his young son to the temple for sacrifice if he wanted good crops. So Urbal obeyed and dragged his wife and boy to the scene 
of what amounted to a religious execution by fire to the God of death. Then after the sacrifice of Erbal's son with several others, the priests announced that one of the fathers had to spend the following week in the temple with a prostitute. Erbal's wife was stunned when she noticed his obvious willingness to go along with this. She was shocked to see him eagerly push forward when his name was called. After the ceremony was over, she walked out of the temple with her head still swimming, but she drew a very telling conclusion about her husband. If he had different gods, he would have been a different man. If he had different gods, he would have been a different man. In his classic book, which I'd still recommend to anyone, The Bondage of the Will, the great Christ-German reformer Martin Luther made a similar point when he, he likened a human being to a horse. Does God leap into the saddle, Luther wrote? The horse is obedient. Does God throw down the reins? Then Satan leaps upon the back of the animal which bends, goes and submits to the spurs and caprices of its new rider. And one of Paul's central arguments in Romans 12 is that it's only when we're totally committed to God, the true living God, that we can serve God effectively. The Apostle goes on to apply this principle to the question of spiritual gifts. But what is Paul's main teaching in verse 1? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now the Greek word translated worship here is a very general one and so is the Apostle's definition of it. In the final analysis, true spiritual worship for the Apostle involves nothing less than offering our whole selves, indeed our whole lives, to God. So it's about so much more than what we do on Sunday mornings in church or elsewhere when we gather as a Christian community. Worship is about how we lead our lives in totality. As Christians, we are called to worship God with all that we have, wherever we are. And how can we answer this calling most effectively? By honouring the total commitment involved in Christian worship to offer ourselves as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. Which brings us to the second principle of worship that I want to highlight this morning thorough conversion. We've probably all been through some kind of training program here today for a job, for some other activity, maybe for a ministry in church and when we do we tend to be challenged to change our minds about things, don't we? We tend to learn to think differently, at least if we're open to what we're being taught. 
Some institutions take this way more seriously than others. Nowadays, I think some corporations almost seem to turn their employees, or try to, into religious disciples. But any form of instruction can have an impact and that can change over time according to our circumstances. To take just one rather personal example, just over 32 years ago when I first attended prenatal classes with Kirsten, I didn't expect to be of great help during the delivery of our first child uh, Natalie. But as time progressed, and certainly when it came to that big day, and I was asked to assist the midwife, beyond my initial shock and horror, <laughs> I soon learned otherwise. And that's the way education is supposed to work. We discover new information and insights, we, we shift our views on things. As a result, in verse 2 of Romans 12, the Apostle Paul urges a similar process in our Christian growth. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, he says, but be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, the Apostle is encouraging his readers to reject worldly standards when they are ungodly and to be changed deep inside by God. He's urging a, a radical form of Christian education which involves nothing less than the total transformation of our minds and our hearts. That transformation really continues, if you want to think about it this way, the process of our conversion. Because our Christian lives are intended to be a continual process of growth in grace as we become more like Jesus. And how does Paul expect that more thorough conversion to come about? Basically, as we follow Jesus on life's journey, as we immerse ourselves in his teaching, and what does he expect to be the consequence? That we should become more like Jesus. That we should be able to know God's will more clearly, even to test and approve it. So Paul is linking knowledge of God's purposes with a change in outlook. And the Bible is obviously our best source book in all this because it says our minds are renewed by God's word and transformed by God's spirit. That God brings about the kind of deep inner change that really makes a difference. It's also as we do that that we can truly become the kind of worshipful community in which we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Yet even when we're committed to Christ, even when our minds are being renewed, we can only worship God wholeheartedly if we also follow Paul's advice in verse 3. 
Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. We don't always like to acknowledge this, do we? But misguided zeal, based on unrealistic ideas of ourselves or others, can sometimes be just as much of a problem in the church as a lack of commitment. By contrast, Romans 12 calls us all to a greater sense of realism about who we are and the best that we have to offer. It pinpoints the value of what I've called true conceptions, appropriate self-knowledge, if you like, rather than false impressions. And it's significant, I think, that Paul makes this point in connection with spiritual gifts, which he addresses directly in verses 4 through 8, where he appeals to this powerful, wonderful image of the church as the body of Christ, which we also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I quote from verses 4 through 8. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage a much underrated spiritual gift, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, Another one we tend to ignore. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The Apostle clearly stresses the value of all our different contributions to the worship and health of the body of Christ here. And that includes all the spiritual and other gifts that we have to offer, not just the seven that he specifies. But he does so within the framework of his general counsel that we should also be humble and honest about ourselves and what God has given us. That way, of course, we're more likely to end up doing what God has really called us to rather than what we may be selfishly sometimes keen to undertake. That way, too, we'll be able to contribute our best to building up the church rather than simply our most ambitious. And when we are realistic, when we have true conceptions about our gifts and we're willing to share them, the scope for growth in biblical terms is ultimately limitless. Donald Raub told the story of natives of a third world country who were once given a sundial. They were thrilled when they learned how to tell time by observing the shadow of the sun on its face. 
And as days passed, this amazing instrument attracted such interest that the leaders of this group decided that it deserved some sort of worship. Large crowds began to gather, but this created a problem because they now began to fear for the safety of the sundial. So the tribal elders decided that a beautiful building should be, ha- should be erected to house it. Eventually, the project was completed and a formal celebration was announced, but when thousands attended, the leaders made a startling discovery. For now that it was indoors, of course, the sundial was totally useless. So rather than admit error, the elders decided to preserve the new building as a shrine for future generations. It's a rather stark illustration, but one sometimes wonders whether churches haven't kind of done the same sort of thing with their sanctuaries. We can create such wonderful settings in which to worship God. We can so prize our worship traditions that we forget just how freely we can worship God wherever we gather in community, in the sanctuary or outside. The key is not so much how we worship, but how much. And as we reflect on what that may mean for us here at Ebenezer, I want to draw to a close by offering a few more specific preliminary observations. As most of you know, I was brought up in the Church of England. I've been familiar with Anglican worship pretty much all my life, and I've spent much of the past 20 years leading it. And I think there's going to be a picture behind me which shows me in all my glory with the colourful Anglican robes. But I also came to faith in a charismatic Baptist church where I discovered the great value of contemporary non-liturgical forms of worship and now I'm senior pastor in an NAB church where you have your own Baptist traditions. As a result... I feel pretty much at home in most Christian services. I enjoy worship led by a praise band, especially a good one, like the one we have here, as much as a more traditional liturgy with organ and robed choir. I'm as comfortable with gospel songs and hymns as with a Pentecostal-style service. So I value the blended style of Sunday worship that we enjoy at Ebenezer right now which combines elements of old and new. And while there will undoubtedly be minor changes over time, one of my main goals here is to work towards greater unity as a community. So you may or may not be relieved to hear that I have no intention of trying to homogenise our worship life in any way. Instead, I believe that we should make the most of the diverse gifts and resources that God has given us as long as we're guided by key biblical principles and we work together. And what are those principles? We've considered three of the most important in Romans chapter 12. 
when it comes to the big picture which extends way beyond what we do on Sundays God calls us to total commitment God calls us to thorough conversion and true conceptions, true ideas as we seek to worship God in every aspect of our lives so all our worship on Sunday mornings as in every other setting should be open to and informed by the Spirit of God and we should be strive to be guided by the truth of God's word in all that we think or say or do. The wartime Christian leader William Temple was one of the most influential of the 20th century and it was Temple who offered the following definition of worship and I quote Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by God's holiness, the nourishment of mind with God's truth, the purifying of imagination by God's beauty, the opening of the heart to God's love, the surrender of will to God's purpose. And all of this, he wrote, gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. The Westminster Shorter Catechism from the mid-17th century and a rather different theological tradition made a similar point on an even broader scale. What is the chief end of man? Asked its very first question in the traditional male language of its era. The answer... Man, or nowadays we probably say humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're all here for. That's the kind of worship that God seeks and it involves our whole lives It can transform our community. It can impact the whole world around us. When we are truly willing, every single one of us, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Let's bow our heads.